and as you are, as always, through our handouts. And I guess I have to say um, that I'll admit to being a bit embarrassed about what I gave you on the back half of your handout. Um, it really is proof that I'm a nerd, um, nerding out on Second Chronicles. Um, but on the front side is a typical handout and outline. On the back side, I, I gave you this diagram. And the reason why is, as I've been studying and preparing for this particular lesson, um, frankly, I was having a hard time keeping track of all the different characters. There's a lot of people in this period of Judah's history, and they're all doing things to each other and trying to trace through how they relate to one another. That's what's on the back of your handout. We're not going to go through it. It's just there for your reference. If it helps you, then it's served its purpose. If it doesn't help you, if you find it confusing, and shame on me, I apologize. But nevertheless, um, we do come to a uh, really a sad period in Judah's history today. We're going to cover several chapters of Second Chronicles. We're going to be, this really is a survey today. We're going to go fairly quickly through chapters 21 through 24 as we work our way from King Jehoram to King Joash. That's the outline today. And I should pray before we begin. So let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you again for another Lord's Day. Time to come together to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy teaching, to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word, Lord, that your spirit would have your word have its effect in our hearts. Lord, teach us what you would have us to know today. Lord, lead us to worship, even as we listen now and in the next hour in the worship service. Lord, we are grateful to you for your kindness to us and bringing us together as part of God's family, redeemed people, chosen and dearly loved. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you recall from last week looking at King Jehoshaphat, we saw that by and large the chronicler had a very favorable opinion, very favorable view of Jehoshaphat, because um, he was a faithful man. He was by and large a very faithful king in Judah. But of course he wasn't perfect. He had his own flaws, like we all do. And there was one particular mistake that Jehoshaphat made that we looked at last week. And that was that he made an alliance by marriage with King Ahab in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. And I said last week that that alliance that Jehoshaphat made between his son Jehoram and Ahab's daughter Athaliah, that's the marriage we're talking about. I said last week that that was going to bring disastrous fruit in the people of Judah, and we're going to see that today. Um, this is not generally a happy story today. Perhaps we would see it as even depressing, um, but this is where we are in Judah's history. So if you're not there already, Second Chronicles chapter 21, I'll read verses 1 through 7 to begin. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, became king in his place. And he had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azarihu, Mikael, and Shephathiah. All of these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things, with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. And when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all of his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old and he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab did for Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So Jehoshaphat was also not only faithful, but he was generous. He was a generous father, giving many gifts to his sons, material wealth he gave to his sons, even giving them entire cities 
And to his firstborn, Jehoram, he gives him the kingdom. He's the one that's going to carry along David's line as king. And how does Jehoram receive this kindness? How does Jehoram receive this generosity from his father? Well, he seeks to eliminate all of the rivals to the throne, if there were any, at least, in Jehoram's mind. He kills all of his brothers. It's the first thing the chronicler records that Jehoram does when he becomes king. He kills his brothers. Now, why did he do this? Well, the immediate answer might be because he wanted to make sure that there was no one else that could vie for power against him. We also should understand verse 6 tells us, ultimately, that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did. So right at the beginning of Jehoram's reign, I think we're already seeing the bad fruit that was been, that's been born from the alliance that Jehoshaphat made with Ahab. Um, he's married, Jehoram is married to Athaliah, and already he's turning 180 degrees from the faithfulness of his father. That said, verse 7 should be encouraging to us. It tells us that even though Jehoram is acting the way he is, uh, God is determined to remain faithful to his people. He is not willing to destroy the house of David because, of course, he has made the covenant with David. God will keep his promise to David. But at the same time, as we've seen before in Chronicles, when a king does something disobedient, when he acts in unfaithfulness, it's usually pretty immediately after that that God brings his hand of discipline upon that king. And that's what happens. Let's read the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 8. In his days, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. Then Jehoram crossed over with his commanders and all his chariots with him. And it came about that he arose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and the commanders of the chariots. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, as the house of Ahab played the harlot. You have also killed your brothers, your own family, who were better than you. Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And you will suffer severe sickness, disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. Then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs and bordered by the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. So after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. And it came about in the course of time at the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of this sickness, and he died in great pain. And his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. And he departed with no one's regret, and they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. So Jehoram finds that enemies are now rising up against him. First of all, it's the Edomites. They come against Judah. And how does Jehoram respond to that? Well, in verse 11 it says that he makes high places in the mountains of Judah. That is, he's not making things better for his people, he's making things worse. He's setting up places for idol worship, for false worship to occur. So he makes things worse. And then rather than God sending another enemy 
God sends a message, sends a letter through Elijah. We might not have expected to see Elijah pop into our story today, but this is that Elijah. This is Elijah who we know well as he was ministering normally in the northern kingdom. We think of him often as Ahab's nemesis in the north. And based on the dates here, Elijah was probably near the end of his life. But he sends Jehoram this letter. God sends Jehoram a letter through Elijah. And basically, Elijah says that judgment is coming. Because Jehoram is being unfaithful, because he's walking in the way of the kings of Israel, the judgment is coming. He's going to strike not only Jehoram, but also all of Judah. Jehoram's children, his wives, everyone is going to be affected, is the message that Elijah brings. And particularly for Jehoram, what's going to happen to him is he's going to get this terrible disease. I don't really know what it was, a disease where ultimately his bowels come out somehow. Could not have been pleasant. So we saw that eventually, and this was a long illness that took place over the course of two years, eventually God's judgment has its effect and Jehoram dies. Notice, they made no fire for him, that is, they did not have some sort of happy memorial for this dead king, but rather, verse 20 says, he died to no one's regret. No one was sorry that this man had died. Can you imagine? And can you imagine at the end of our lives if someone's reading the obituary and they see, oh, Nathan Carruth died yesterday. Huh. Turn the page. No one cared. No one cared that this man was dead. So, also we should point out before this happened, there were other enemies that were sent, and they did execute justice over Jehoram's family, and apparently all of Jehoram's children, except for one, was killed. Um, there appears to be only one man left to take the throne. Let's read the first few verses of chapter 22. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. For his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab. For they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He also walked according to their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to wage war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth Gilead. Arameans wounded Joram. So he returned to be healed in Jezreel of his wounds, which they had an inflicted on him at Ramah when he had fought against Hazael, king of Aram. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Now the destruction of Ahaziah was from God, and that he went to Joram. And when he came, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. So what is happening here? Well, Ahaziah becomes king. Um, he was somehow spared when the enemies came to destroy all of his brothers. And like I said, it seems that the line of David is hanging on by the slenderest of threads. We should remind ourselves, as the text does, of who Ahaziah's mother was. Well, it was Athaliah. And she apparently extends her evil influence over her son after he becomes king. And he counsels him to do wickedly according to the house of Ahab. And perhaps one of those things that she counseled him to do was to make yet another alliance with the northern kingdom. So Ahaziah allies himself with, I think the best way to read the name is Joram, the king in the north. And they decide... Um, of all things, 
to go to war together, and at the same place, you may recall from last week, Ramoth Gilead. Now another battle takes place at the exact same place where we saw last week that Ahab was killed and Jehoshaphat nearly lost his life. So Ahaziah is back at the same place, and what happens is the king in the north, Joram, is wounded. He's wounded in this battle. And I guess as a show of solidarity, Ahaziah decides to go and visit him. Okay, we've made this alliance, you've been wounded, I will go and minister to you after you've been injured. And verse 7 says that this was Ahaziah's destruction because he went to Joram, and we'll see what happens next. Um, Basically what's going to happen is his alliance again with the north is going to be Ahaziah's undoing, but also as verse 7 makes clear that it's also God's doing. God is bringing about his purpose. Let's read verses 8 and 9. And it came about when Jehu, there's another new character, I'll explain in a second. Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab. He found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. He also sought Ahaziah and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu, they put him to death and buried him. For they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all of his heart. So there was no one in the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. All right, so if things were hanging on by a slender thread a moment ago, it appears that things are getting even more tenuous in Judah. Because what happens now is there's this man named Jehu who was in the northern kingdom, and he was God's agent to bring about judgment on the descendants of Ahab, okay? But simply because Ahaziah and some of his people had gone to the north, they really ended up being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So Jehu is killing all of Ahab's descendants, and simply because Ahaziah is there, he ends up being killed as well. So, Jehoram has been killed by illness. Ahaziah has been killed by a man executing judgment in the north. And the end of verse 9 says, there's no one of the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. I think we should take that to mean that there aren't any boys old enough that could seem like they'd make a legitimate king. Well, there's nobody left. Or was there? Was there someone waiting to fill this power vacuum? Well, let's read verses 10 through 12. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she would not put him to death. And he was hidden with them in the house of God six years, and Athaliah reigned over the land. So once again, we're seeing yet another generation being affected by the alliance that Jehoshaphat had made with Ahab. Like I said, Jehoram died, Ahaziah has met his end, and now Ahab's wicked daughter, Athaliah, seizes the opportunity, thinking that this is the way that I can now put an end entirely to David's line. Understand what she's doing. She's killing her grandchildren. These are her own grandchildren that she is putting to death. And it's obvious that at least some of them are babies. She's killing her infant grandchildren. But God's hand of providence remains steadfast. Because even while Athaliah is doing this, there's this faithful and courageous young girl, Jehoshabeth, who 
takes it upon herself, and I'm sure at great risk to herself, to hide away little infant Joash, hide him from Athaliah, understanding that if we don't hide him, well, who is going to retain the kingdom? Who is going to be the rightful heir in Judah? So she saves Joash from his wicked grandmother. I just find it interesting that this is not the only time that God seems to continue to bring about salvation among his people by hiding away a little baby. We saw it with Moses being hidden from Pharaoh. We saw it with Jesus being hidden away from King Herod. And now we see Joash being hidden from Athaliah. But for six years, Athaliah is queen in Judah. Now, it's not a legitimate reign. Now, she is not of the house and line of David. But since there's no one else to rule, she's glad to do it herself. And so for six years, she rules over Judah. Um, not knowing all the while that for those six years, Joash is being brought up by Jehoshabeth and her husband in the temple. Probably they felt pretty confident that Athaliah was not going to be coming around the temple very often. So it was probably safe there. Now from man's perspective, or certainly from Athaliah's perspective, David's line has been snuffed out. Right? She thinks she's taken care of it. It's over with. She has seemingly, as her father Ahab attempted to do, thwarted God's purpose and thwarted God's promises. Or has she? Let's keep reading chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Now in the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and took captains of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jehoram, Ishmael the son of Johanan, Azariah the son of Obed, Masiah the son of Adai, and Elishaphat the son of Zikri, and they entered into a covenant with him. And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the father's household of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has spoken concerning the sons of David. This is the thing which you, which you shall do. One-third of you of the priests and Levites who come in on the Sabbath shall be gatekeepers, one third shall be at the king's house, and a third at the gate of the foundation, and all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and the ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. And let all the people keep the charge of the Lord. And the Levites will surround the king, each man with his weapon in his hand, and whoever enters the house, let him be killed. Thus, be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So Athaliah has not counted on two things. She's not counted on the fact that God's covenant word cannot be broken. God will keep his promise. He will keep his covenant with David. He will put the rightful man on the throne. And secondly, Athaliah would have no way, she would have no understanding of this. She hadn't counted on the fact that a faithful man of God, that is Jehoiada, this high priest, a faithful man of God, given the opportunity, can make a huge difference in the kingdom of God. That would have been totally foreign to her thinking. Wouldn't have counted on that. Because now we have this other new character, Jehoiada, the high priest, and he has a plan. Of course, he and his wife have been raising Joash from infancy. Now he's probably about six or seven years old. And his plan is this. He builds this coalition, this, this group of people across the, the religious and the military spectrum in Judah, from Levites and priests, the officials, the names they list, the army. And they gather together this coalition, and they make a covenant among themselves that this is what we're going to do. We're going to put Joash, again, seven years old, on the throne. And as we know that Athaliah's reign is not legitimate, understand she's still in power. 
And so perhaps the reason that he makes this covenant with all these people together is that, well, we're not sure how Athaliah is going to respond to this. It could be with violence. And so let's make sure that all of the people really are committed to Joash and I think to Jehoiada being this counselor. So they make this covenant to do this. They're going to put Joash on the throne. And notice that all of this is going to take place in the temple courts. He scripts it out. Some of you guys are stationed here. Some of you are stationed here. Joash is going to be on the front porch, the portico of the temple, with soldiers all around him. If anyone else tries to get into the temple courts, kill them. Verses 8 through 15. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each one of them took his men who were to come in on the Sabbath with those who were to go out on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss any of the divisions. Then Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains of hundreds the spears and the large and small shields which had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he stationed all the people, each man with his weapon in his hand, on his right side of the house or the left side of the house, by the altar and by the house, around the king. And they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running, praising the king she came into the house of the lord of the people and she looked and behold the king was standing by his pillar at the entrance and the captains and the trumpeters were beside the king and all the people of the land rejoiced in blue trumpets the singers with their musical instruments leading the praise then athaliah tore her clothes and said treason treason and jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them Bring her out between the ranks, and whoever follows her put to death with the sword. But the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they seized her. When she arrived at the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, they put her to death there. I just have to say, is this not high drama? We think about things in the scripture that we would have liked to have witnessed firsthand. Like, oh, wouldn't it have been amazing to see the Red Sea parted in two? Or to be at the stable when Jesus was born. Or to see Jesus shine with this glory and radiance of the transfiguration. I want to see this. Because here's this little boy, Joash, seven years old. A crown's on his head. It's probably too big for his head, right? He's got a scroll in his hand. He's surrounded by these soldiers. The temple court is full of people worshiping. They're gathered around to see God's plan and purposes be put back as they should be, and the cry goes up, long live the king. Before we think about what happens next, I think we should understand the significance of why this took place at the temple. Um, aside from the fact that it's where Joash grew up, um, we know that the temple was the place where God's glory and his presence were manifest among his people. And it's even, I think, has something to do with the architecture of the temple. I'm perhaps biased, but if you have, you may have seen diagrams or drawings of Solomon's temple. If you have a study Bible, you probably have one in there somewhere. The front porch, the portico of the temple, had these two huge bronze pillars supporting the roof of the portico. And the scripture tells us that those pillars even had names. They were named Joachim and Boaz. What does that have to do with it? Well, Jaquin, that name means he establishes, that is, God establishes. And Boaz means strength is in him, or strength is in God. So even before this took place with Joash, when the temple was built, I think this symbolized the fact that Judah, Israel, God's people, understood simply by looking at the temple, these names of these pillars that they found their strength in God and that God has established his people and he had established his presence at the temple. So hopefully, the symbolism wasn't lost on the crowd that was gathered there that day. That's why we have this little boy 
being crowned as king. He's standing in between these huge pillars, almost 30 feet tall. And perhaps as they're thinking in the back of their minds, what's going to happen when Athaliah realizes what we're doing here today? Perhaps they should see, literally, in bricks, mortar, and bronze, that God has established his covenant. It is God's strength that causes his promises and his purposes not to fail. And we have every reason to hope that even this little boy will bring about God's purposes in his kingdom. And of course, what happens with Athaliah? She takes notice of what's happening, the noise and commotion, the crowd, the singing, and she goes for herself to find out what's happening. She doesn't send someone to find out, she goes herself. And the irony of what she does is pretty staggering. She goes into the temple court, she sees Joash being crowned as king, and she cries out, treason, treason. Well, did treason really mean anything to her? I mean, how was it that she came to power? by killing all of the rightful heirs. She was a traitor herself. And interestingly, since she, I'm sure she thought that she had killed all of the rightful heirs, seeing Joash standing there with a crown on his head and the scroll in his hand, she probably didn't know that he really was the rightful heir. She probably couldn't have known that all these years Joash was being raised in the temple. So she sees it taking place, and she is undone. And Jehoiada gives the order, don't kill her in the temple, take her out. And so the scripture says that she was killed at the horse gate. Now just briefly, a quick little quote from Raymond Dillard. It says, the horse gate of the city wall, that is Jerusalem city wall, led to the Kidron Valley, where dead bodies are thrown, according to Jeremiah. This would have made a fitting exit for Athaliah as her mother herself, Jezebel, had been trampled by horses. So Athaliah meets her end. She's now out of the picture. And what about Joash? This boy that's been raised in the temple. So much promise with this little one, right? So much hope as her seeing him made king. How was Joash going to do? Let's just read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 24. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zibiah from Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he became the father of sons and daughters. So, Initially, Joash does well, and notice the reason he does well is because he has this high priest, Jehoiada, that has been raising him for his early life. Jehoiada is giving him godly counsel. Would have been, I'm sure, an excellent counselor to have as a young king. It says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. But what happens after Jehoiada dies? What happens when Joash no longer has that good counsel in his ear? Well, skip down to verse 15. 15 through 19. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. And he was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for for this their guilt. Yet he, that's God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. So, it doesn't take long after Jehoiada is dead for Joash to forsake the Lord. He stops doing what's right, and he begins to follow pagan idols, 
forgetting about the temple, abandoning the house of the Lord. And even though God sends prophets to call he and his people to repentance, they don't repent. And in fact, things get worse. Verses 20 through 22. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. So faithful priest, faithful man Jehoiada had a faithful son, Zechariah, and he brings a message to Joash, a message to repent. This is not the same Zechariah who has a scripture book written by him, different man. But still, he pronounces woe on Joash and the people of God. And how is Zechariah repaid for this faithfulness? Well, Joash himself orders that he should be stoned to death. And where is he stoned to death? This is also sadly ironic. He's stoned to death in the temple court, not far from the place where Joash as a boy had been made king by Zechariah's father, Jehoiada. what's become of Joash? Well, he's now a murderer, just like his grandfather and his grandmother before him. Is there a way for things to improve? Not today. <laughs> let's, let's finish the chapter, then we'll make some application. Verse 23 through 27. Now it came about at the turn of the year that the army of the Aramaeans came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people and among them the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Aramaeans came with a small number of men. Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and murdered him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Now these are those who conspired against him, Zabad the son of Shimeath the Ammonitus, and Jehozabad the son of Shemurath the Moabitus. And to his sons and the many oracles against him and the rebuilding of the house of God, behold, they are written in the treatise of the book of the kings. Then Amaziah, his son, became king in his place. So once again, a familiar theme, God responds to unfaithfulness with discipline and judgment. Um, sending yet another army to invade, this time the Aramaeans. And while this conflict itself doesn't necessarily take Joash's life, he apparently becomes very sick. And what happens to him? Well, on his sickbed, his own servants murder him. And the reason they do this is they are avenging the blood of Zechariah, the priest that he had stoned to death in the temple. And how are we to remember Joash? Well, verse 27, as to his sons and the many oracles against him. Well, then you can go read them elsewhere. Let's just stop and think back about all the things we've seen happen this morning. First of all, Jehoram, first thing he does, he kills all of his brothers. And so Jehoram is stricken by God with a disease and he dies. Then Ahaziah becomes king. He makes an alliance with the north with Israel. He's struck down by Jehu simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then Athaliah takes the throne she seeks to exterminate the entire Davidic line by killing her own grandchildren. But then Athaliah is struck down. Little Joash is spared. He's protected eventually. He's put on the throne by the priest Jehoiada. But then after Jehoiada died, Joash falls to unfaithfulness. 
Joash has Jehoiada's son Zechariah killed, and Joash himself is stricken with a sickness and dies on his deathbed, killed by his own servants. Does this sound like the people of God? Does this sound like the kingdom of God? Does this sound like obeying the Mosaic Covenant, fulfilling the Davidic Covenant, and bringing in the blessing of Abraham? Well, no. But this was the life of Judah at this time. For 50 some odd years, this was the life of God's people. Now we intuitively know that this is not what these kings should have endured. That's obvious to us. But what should they have been doing? How should they have been acting? Well, turn back to Deuteronomy. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We'll look at this text and one other text as we try to bring this lesson to a close for ourselves and our own lives. Deuteronomy 17, these few verses at the end of this chapter, verses 18 through 20, give us kind of this ideal behavior for God's king in Israel. What should God's king do? Well, among other things, he should do this. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law and a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So here is an expectation of what God wanted his king to do. One of the things is to literally copy out in their own hand God's law. And I think they maybe wanted the priest to watch him do this, maybe to make sure that he got it right. And he copies it out, and he's also to keep it with him. Take it with him. Read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord by carefully observing this law. And that his heart might not be lifted up above his countrymen, above his brothers. It's really an amazing thing that God wanted his kings to do. And one has to wonder, well, I wonder, could it have been, I would imagine, that David probably did this. Perhaps when we read in the Psalms when David said, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation both day and night. Maybe that was a result of David doing this. Writing out God's law with his own hand, taking it with him, learning to fear the Lord. Wonderful thing for God's kings to do, but you have to imagine that these three kings we looked at today knew nothing of this. I can't imagine that they did this. What should have been happening is they should have been examples in Judah. They should have been exemplars of, as husbands and fathers. They were not expected to be perfect, but they were expected to be walking in holiness and in faithfulness and leading their people to do the same. So what really was their problem? Why did they do what they did? Well, I think they have a threefold problem, and this is the way we're going to conclude. Turn back one more time, turn to the left, Exodus chapter 20. We'll look at the first of what I think is their three problems. And these three problems should also be warnings to us. Exodus chapter 20, I'll read verses 4 through 6. We're in the middle of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what was the first of, I think, their threefold problem? Well, God had decreed here 
in giving the Mosaic law that he would not leave the guilty unpunished and he would visit the iniquity of fathers to their sons and grandsons after them to the third and the fourth generation. Now, this does not mean that the sin of a particular father will necessarily bear consequences three or four generations after that. It could. But really, I think what this is saying is that unrepentant sins that afflict a particular father will very likely will show up in the lives of his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. I think their first problem was what began with Jehoshaphat's divided devotion, both to God but also to the ways of Ahab. That divided devotion Jehoshaphat had, I think, ultimately compounded so that Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Joash had no devotion to God at all. I think this was showing us Exodus chapter 20. This is visiting the iniquity of fathers to their sons to the second and third and fourth generation. Because these three kings, they had no concern for worship at all. They had no concern for the temple. But again, we still wonder, how could they have floundered so badly? Were they not the chosen men to be king? Did not God put them in that place? Or we might even wonder, kind of in our own language today, were they even believers? Will we find them in heaven someday? Well, were they not within the covenant of David? Did they not sit on David's throne? Well, my preparation this week, and I'm going to answer that question, were they believers or not? In my preparation this week, I think I learned an important corrective about God's covenants. And when we think about the Abrahamic or the Davidic or the Mosaic covenant, we shouldn't think of God's covenants as containers, as something that people are either inside of or outside of. I think I even used that language last week, and I don't think it's the best way to look at God's covenants. Rather, God's covenant, they are his promises given to his people, and they're two-edged promises, such that God has declared that for all people, ultimately, they will find themselves either inheriting God's covenant blessing or God's covenant curse. And each of these men we saw today, as well as Athaliah, they broke God's covenant. And as a result, they found their lives literally broken against God's covenant of judgment, his word of judgment. In effect, they wasted their lives. They were wasted lives. But, I mean, you really think Joash had such potential. Of all people to be king in Israel, to have grown up in the high priest's house, in the temple, um, how could Joash have wasted this potential? Well, here's, I think, their second problem. All these men grew up in and around God's people, but they didn't know God. And I think that's a warning for us today as well. Um, so much of our lives are lived in and among and around God's people. Even our children, we're bringing them up in and among and around God's people but do we, do our children really know God? It is a great blessing to be in and around and among God's people. But at the same time, which side of God's two-edged covenant sword, as it were, do we find ourselves on? Because understand that ultimately the covenant that's most operative for us is the new covenant. Right? We saw this portrayed last week in the Lord's table. The new covenant, we know, um, is a covenant that was instituted with blood. Jesus' own blood, freely given to make atonement for sin. So what will we do? Will we, like Jehoram, Ahaziah, Athaliah, and Joash, live a wasted life of unfaithfulness? I don't think they were believers. They couldn't have been. They did what people are still tempted to do today. They trampled under their feet the blood of the new covenant. 
Jesus' own blood given to make atonement for sin. Because understand that that warning is for us today. If we trample under our feet the blood of the new covenant, then we will also inherit God's covenant curse, finding our own lives broken against God's covenant word of judgment. So in order to avoid what Ahaziah, Joash, and Jehoram did, we must simply faithfully entrust ourselves to God and Christ on the basis of his blood-bought redemption of sin. That is the only way for us to inherit God's covenant blessing. That is salvation from sin now and in eternity. We know this verse from Ephesians. Paul wrote, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. What was their third problem? They never sought forgiveness for sin. They never sought repentance. Because understand that the promise that was given to Judah in 2 Chronicles 7.14, that was available to them. If they, as God's people, will humble themselves, seek his face, turn from their wicked ways, and pray, God would have heard them. And he would have given them forgiveness and he would have healed them. And again, that promise to those kings was wasted on them. They didn't turn from their sin and repent. So I think that's the message the chronicler has for us. Is that do not let God's promise of repentance and forgiveness of sin be wasted on you. Lord, we, um, we can learn from um, difficult periods of history where men and women were unfaithful because, Father, it can remind us and warn us um, that if we do not turn to you in faith, forgiveness and repentance of sin, um, then we will find our own lives broken as these men did and please help us to um, be reminded of the richness of your grace given to us and your goodness in that Lord help us to uh, worship you Lord uh, knowing that you are gracious and ready to forgive ready to receive any repentant sinner who would come to you in faith we thank you for that in Jesus name Amen